image is everything. So for example, if you're taking a group picture and the group picture gets back to you through a text message or maybe in a frame, who is the first person you tend to look at in the group picture? Raise your hand if it's yourself. You just zoom in as if the whole picture's you. You're like one of like 300. And then you say it's a bad picture just because you don't like the way you look. Why do we do that? Because image is everything. And the most honest individuals among us, we're transparent, will admit that we care sometimes too much and a whole lot about our image. Now, there are different types of images about ourselves that go on in the world. There's the image we have of ourselves that we think often about. But then there's the image that others have and how they perceive us. Sometimes those two images match. Sometimes those two images don't match. But if you get to know anyone for a long period of time, you'll discover that we all as human beings, in one way or another, have an identity image obsession. We've got all that in common. So, think critically and carefully even about your own self. Think about how much we constantly examine ourselves. Think about how each one of us can find ourselves caring a lot about our competency level at work. Or how much we think about our parenting and our marriages, whether they look successful or like a failure in front of our family and friends. Think about how each one of us can find ourselves obsessively preoccupied with our great accomplishments in school, public speaking abilities, social skills, and serving performance, even at church, our artistic or creativity level in our homes and gardens, our respectability amongst peers and family, our athletic ability amongst teammates, our aesthetics amongst our trucks, cars, yards, and houses. Friends, think about how much time we spend in the mirror, looking at the appearance of our faces, hair, clothes, even our bodies. Friends, think about how much time that you and I have spent just this past week on dressing up and attending to our image. Think about how much time, even just this past week, that you and I have spent aiming to gain the approval in pleasing others with a certain image. We can take any one of the things I just mentioned or pile them all up and put them in a basket together, and what we find somewhere buried deep down in this preoccupation with image is pride. Pride is buried deep down inside each one of us. An unhealthy preoccupation with self-centeredness and vain glory. This is something that all of us are prone to. If we're poked or pricked, Soon enough, that pride does come out. Instead of resting in the acceptance we already have by faith in Jesus, we can become exhausted 
approval junkies. Take, for example, how pride affects the way we behave depending on who we're around. We can change our behavior like a chameleon does when he changes his colors in a new environment. When we know doing so will gain us notoriety, praise, and acceptance from others regarding their perception of us. That's because we care a lot about our image. A picture, a portrait of ourselves that we want painted in the best light, even if that portrait is not telling the whole truth about ourselves. We do this in other ways too, right? How we dress. In fact, when I was growing up as a kid, I don't know if you teach your kids this. I don't really say it with our kids as much, but we grew up, mom and dad, talking about wearing your Sunday best. Or those in the career world, you know what it's like to go into that sweat-inducing interview. Or on that first date with that romantic interest of yours, we do what? We dress to impress, or we at least try to. We do that because we're trying to gain something from others, from our image. Uh, Friends, whether it is longing for some respectable status in the corporate world or in the business world, whether it's longing for a big platform in a ministry that gets lots of praise and hype, whether it's basing your self-worth and your self-esteem by how many likes or shares you get on Instagram with your picture, friends, search our lives and you will find a preoccupation with image. But friends, that's normal for the world to do that. How should Christians think about their image? How much weight should Christians put towards what others think of us? What if, what if we think of ourselves and what others think of us not as the most important thing anymore? How would your life and my life change starting today if Jesus' assessment of our lives, if Jesus' evaluation of our image was what we were most concerned about? How would our life look different? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 555. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can take the Bible in the chair backs as a gift from our church to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be on page 555 in the chair Bibles provided. Now last week, we concluded our three-month series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Next week, we'll have a guest preacher here with us, Jeff Chang, professor a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. He'll be preaching two chapters out of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13 and 14. And then in two weeks, we'll pick back in the Gospel of Mark, where I left off last time about five months ago. Uh, But this morning, we're in a standalone sermon, meditating deeply on Paul's words to the Corinthian church about how our human perception or our human judgment 
needs to be looked at through Christian eyes. Specifically, how you and I reevaluate or examine one another in the local church. In our passage today, we're going to learn about how the Corinthians were needing to be corrected in how they viewed Paul as an apostle, the one who planted their church, and a preacher of the gospel. And then by implication, we'll also learn how all Christians should view themselves and their spiritual leaders in light of the coming judgment. Our passage this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Please follow with me. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is God's word. If this is your first time reading the letter of 1 Corinthians, or it's just simply been a long time since you've read this letter, uh, we need to be caught up to speed on what's happened in the first three chapters leading up to chapter 4. So let me catch us up to speed. Through his apostolic mission, authorized by Jesus, around A.D. 50, Paul had made his way to a city called Corinth. Uh, Corinth is located today in what we would consider south-central Greece, about 50 miles west of Athens. After preaching the gospel in the face of fierce persecution, soon a local church was planted there, a local church that was planted just like this one in some ways, and Christians began to multiply amongst the population there. If you want to read more about that mission and what took place, you can read Acts chapter 18 sometime this week. A few years later, he writes his first of several letters back to this body of believers to answer questions that they had about some challenges, problems, some sparks were flying in the church and causing tumultuous issues. And so they looked to Paul like a pastor and needed counsel. They, they needed advice. And if you read the first four chapters in this letter, what you'll notice is that a schism, a division had occurred in the church. It certainly won't be the only instance of division that occurs in the Corinthian congregation, but this morning we're going to look at at least the first of several of those that would ensue. So to better understand why chapter 4 is so significant in Paul's words, we need to go back to what is the root cause of this division. So hold your place in chapter 4, turn back to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. with me and starting in verse 10, verses 10 to 13. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean that is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Apparently, the Corinthian church had begun to treat treat the bride of Christ and her preachers like a beauty pageant. To treat preachers of the gospel like an American politics campaign run. They began gathering around their favorite preacher, esteeming him very highly, and then comparing their favorite preacher and his gifts with the other ministers with the aim of diminishing and tarnishing the other men's ministries. And friends, these weren't false teachers. They'll get to that in 2 Corinthians. But Peter and Apollos are good brothers. And what these congregants are doing is they're pitting these good men, these faithful expositors of God's word against each other, and it's causing fractions to divide the church. Paul here mentions himself. He then even mentions Apollos. You can read more about Apollos in Acts chapter 18. And then he mentions Cephas, which is just the Aramaic name often referred to as Peter in the New Testament. All three of these men have been used by God. They've been used by God to either plant the church, disciple the church, or help the church grow spiritually in some way. That's why people esteem them so highly. So in one sense, the Corinthians were doing something that we should do in Scripture, what Scripture commends. We should give honor where honor is due, and we should not take for granted the gifts of leadership God blesses a church with. A scripture is clear that we should highly esteem and love those who are biblically qualified men who give themselves to the ministry of the word for the building up of Christ's church. You can adjust a few of these down. Among those passages that commend and command this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul says there, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Or consider 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But apparently this highly esteeming of their preachers was not highly esteeming them in love. In other words, there was something else going on in their hearts, in their estimation of these men. They were not putting these men in proper honor and respect due to their ministries, but they were putting them up on a pedestal pridefully puffing up their egos and getting behind their favorite preacher. This was not in humble moderation. This was an egotistical 
division. And it's evident that this is what it caused. You can see there in verse 11 that there was quarreling among them. They're, they're having debates and arguments about who's the better preacher and who's more godly for following that preacher. Fighting. Contention. Dissension. Division. A whole lot of heat in the church, but not a whole lot of light or love was going on in the church. Instead of peace and unity around the person and work of Jesus Christ, instead of the members of the church imitating the humility of Jesus towards one another, their church was becoming ruptured by prideful arguments and narcissistic rivalries. So what was the cause, the root cause of these sinful divisions in the Corinthian church? These divisions were largely a result of church members being man-centered and not God-centered. They had become man-centered and not God-centered. They were viewing their ministries and their favorite ministers based off of human wisdom rather than godly wisdom. They were using human metrics instead of seeing the metrics through the lens of God's word. These sharp divisions were a result of being oohed and awed by a man's giftedness or popularity, or we might say today, where he went to seminary or who he knows, rather than being awed by God's glory and power through Jesus. Hence, we see the congregation that was once formed in unity around the gospel in just a few short years have been divided into cliques. How do we know that? Well, this was their boast. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Well, to the rest of you minions, I follow Christ. Friends, the same sinful divisiveness still occurs in the church today that occurred in the Corinthian church. It's often touted as professing believers loving their denominations or their traditions or their theological labels more than Christ himself. Friends, I know of professing Christians right now. I could call them, text them, or refer them to you. No, I would not do that. They get fired up and excited about politics and politicians more than they do preaching and sharing the gospel. Friends, that's a problem. We are citizens of two kingdoms. We are here on this earth as temporary citizens in the state of Arkansas and some of you Oklahoma. But eternally, eschatologically, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not need anyone to run his campaign for him. He's won that, and no one's replacing him. Friends, we can be passionate about many things in life, whether it's policies, ballot box issues, how America should think about religious freedom, 
in the future. All those are great things to talk about. Jesus is Lord of all of it. But friends, you need to always, I need to always check our hearts. If we're finding ourselves more passionate about things that are temporary over and above those things that will last forever. That's what happened in the Corinthian church. They were esteeming mere mortals and forgetting the immortal God, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then in the remaining chapters of chapters 1 and 2, Paul had to remind them of this massive canyon of a difference between worldly wisdom and human strength or spiritual wisdom and God's strength. Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians that they weren't saved by human rhetoric or human wisdom or from what noble or royal family they came from. It was actually quite the opposite. Paul just kind of lays the humble smackdown on them and says, hey, listen, Corinthians, you weren't all that in a bag of chips. Uh, Most of you came from no-name families, no-name communities, going nowhere but to hell. And yet God, in his grace, saved you. Friends, God gets glory in saving nobodies. I always chuckle when someone says, man, look what the Lord could do if he could save Tom Cruise. Or look what the Lord could do if he could save LeBron James. We'd have it all backwards. If he just takes a popular or wealthy person, God could really change the world. Guys, that is totally opposite of the way God does does things. Jesus didn't come from New York. He came from Nazareth. Who comes from Nazareth? What good comes out of there? God has always taken pleasure in demonstrating his glory and his grace to those who did not deserve it. Those who realize they have nothing to bring to the table except their sin. Uh, Friends, that's why Paul just drives it home chapter after chapter to the Corinthians of the supremacy of God's grace and the supremacy of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It's the message about Jesus Christ being crucified in weakness. It's the message about the God-man leaving heaven and coming to earth. The Son of God taking on the weakness of human flesh and living a perfect, obedient life. He died on a cross for all of us who recognize a rebellion against this good God. All of us who recognize we're sinners in need of a Savior, who repent of our sins and trust in him, we trust in his life, we trust in his death, we trust in his resurrection. Friends, we trust in his promised second coming. Friends, that is the good news for sinners like you and I. This message, the gospel message, will never get old. It's an old message that is always fresh to the souls of true Christians. Friends, the gospel message will sound ridiculous. It will sound wonky to an unbeliever who has not been changed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, you cannot argue someone into Christianity. If you could, someone could argue them right out of it. We need something more than good apologetics. We need something better than eloquent speakers. We need to be born again. And that's what 1 Corinthians 2 is all about. Don't boast, Corinthians. Don't think you're all that smart and all that wise. Any wisdom you got, any spiritual insight you have is because the Spirit of God illuminates you to have it. And friends, even Paul models that here. Did you notice 
how Paul talks about his own ministry. Um, here's just a little Blake rant, sidebar in your notes. Um, it's fine to have social media. It's fine to have websites. We actually have video cameras going around just to update it. That's great. Aesthetics are not bad. Beauty, it can be a good thing. But you know what I find sometimes is that most people think if we build it, they will come. We get the fancy-smancy, massive empire of a building, and the hordes and masses will come. You know, if we turn down the lights, turn up the music, blow some smoke, that'll get people excited about Jesus. Woo! No, that's called an adrenaline rush, and it's going to have a crash later. Paul was one of the most mightily used men of God. Do you know how he described his ministry to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Follow with me. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, if Paul had an Instagram page, he would have no followers today. Who wants to click and share and follow weakness, fear, trembling? And yet Paul says, I came to you in that manner so that when you believed this gospel, you will know in your hearts of hearts that it was not me who saved you. It was not my preaching that saved you. It was the spirit of the living God who woke you up from the dead through this weak vessel like me. Oh, friends, we need to have a good old dosage of what God takes more pleasure in and the type of people he uses. I'm not a good speaker. I don't know a lot of Bible verses. I'm timid and I'm shy. Guess what? You're qualified. Just make yourself available, and God will use you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Then in chapter 3, look over in chapter 3. We're almost to the top of the roller coaster here. Paul returns back to where he began. He needs to bring it back up again. This divisiveness is a serious issue in the Corinthian church, and he wants to expose that root cause once again. Look with me in verses 1 to 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and of behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Friends, what does Paul do in correcting the Corinthians here? What is he teaching us today as well? Uh, Friends, we are merely instruments that the Lord uses. We plant, we water, but God gives the growth. Friends, only God can cause anyone to be saved. Only God can cause anyone's preaching to prosper. Only God can cause fruit to be bore from any of our ministry efforts. Friends, let me just say this again and again and again. Only God can truly grow a church. Anyone can cause a church to swell using entertainment, using gimmicks and games and manipulative tactics. But friends, what happens when our knee swells? Give it some time, and it goes back down. We don't want swelling. We want muscle-building growth that lasts. And friends, only God can do that. And friends, I just want to encourage you as we head into chapter 4, Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, Blake, I'm planting and watering, but I'm not seeing a lot of fruit from my labors. I'm evangelizing, I'm discipling, I'm praying, and it doesn't seem like much is happening. Take art from Richard Baxter. He said, when I die, the gospel dies not, the church dies not, the praise of God die not, the world dies not, but perhaps it will grow better. And those prayers be answered which seem to be lost And perhaps some of the seed I have sown will spring up when I am dead. Friends, continue to labor. Continue being patient. God is faithful. So we finally arrive to chapter 4. As Paul concludes that first large section on addressing this man-centered divisiveness, really man-centered idolatry because Jesus isn't their ultimate boast, does Paul teach them about having a right perception of him? What does Paul show us by example of how to have a right perception of ourselves? What can we this morning learn from Paul's teaching and example of how we should rightly view one another in the local church? If you're taking notes, I have two main points Point number one, I'll repeat it a few times for you. God's portrait of a Christian is an image of a humble servant and a faithful steward. God's portrait of a Christian, you might even say successful, if you want to make it a little more jazzed up, is an image of a humble servant and a faithful steward. Point number two, the judgment that matters the most comes from Jesus on the last day, not man in this life. The judgment that matters the most comes from Jesus on the last day and not man in this life. Let's look at point number one. God's portrait of a Christian is an image of a humble servant and a faithful steward. Look with me there in verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Notice what Paul says right at the outset. This is how one should regard us, or it could even say view us, or this is how you should take an inventory of my portrait, of my image, who I really am. He says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word servant there is not the more common word Paul uses in the New Testament. Some translations might even say ministers here, but I think servant is a little better there. When Paul does use the word servant in most of his letters, he typically uses the word doulos, which means bondservant or slave. Or he uses the word diakonos, where we get our understanding today of assistant or deacon. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he uses a totally different word. He doesn't use doulos. He doesn't use diakonos. He uses this one word he never uses ever again in the New Testament, in his letters. And that is the word huperates. Huperates. What does huperates mean, and why does he tell the Corinthians to view him, Apollos, Cephas, and anyone else God uses in their life as huperates? What does that even mean? The word referred to the slaves who rode oars in the huge Roman gallery warships, galley warships. Literally, the word means an under rower, a common sailor, one who gave themselves to the rowing of oars at the very bottom. They were looked at as the lowest of the lowest class of servants on the ship, and they gave themselves to the most menial, hands-on task at the bottom of the ship. Friends, this is the lowest part. There would have been two benches with about a dozen slaves down there taking their oars and rowing them in unified, strengthening fashion as they were looking to their captain with their legs chained to the ship and chains to one another to move the ship forward. These were called galley slaves, huperates. Paul has been correcting these Corinthians for three chapters. He's been reminding them of the supremacy of Christ over any preacher, the supremacy of the gospel and God's grace over human's wisdom, man's wisdom. He reminds them, I'm an instrument. I plant and I water, but this church is only going to grow if God causes it to grow. And he says, Corinthians, you want a right portrait of your preacher? You want a right portrait of your favorite expositor? They are huperates, galley slaves. They're galley slaves for the captain, and that captain is Jesus. Servants of the captain of our salvation. Oh, friends, to be a huperates, a galley slave in Christ's ship, is far better than being in a king's court in this life. Oh, friends, if you don't believe that, you and I have fallen into the same trap the Corinthians did. What is highly esteemed among men in this world is often nothing in glory. And what is highly esteemed in glory is often scoffed at in this life. 
galley slaves. A galley slave of Christ. Elders at CCBC, do you and I as elders of this congregation view ourselves as galley slaves for Christ? Members of CCBC, in your service in this church, in your service out in the community, in your service to your family, do you view yourself as a hooperates, a galley slave for Captain Jesus? Well, in the authority of God's word, I would encourage each one of us to begin doing so starting now. I might be called a pastor or an under-shepherd. You might be called a member or a deacon. But at the end of the day, the status that is scoffed at by the world but esteemed by Christ that we ought to aspire to is a hooperates, a galley slave. Friends, God may use any one of us God may use a favorite preacher on your podcast or your YouTube channel or a seminary professor. It doesn't really matter, though. At the end of the day, whoever God is using, we are the servants. We are the galley slaves that God is using in other people's lives. Friends, no human being who ever darkens the door of Christ's church is the captain of his ship. It's his ship. It's his church. Any pastor or anyone worth their cloth listening to will understand it ain't their church. CCBC is not Blake Boylston's church. And you have my permission to correct people if they say, I heard that's that Boylston guy's church. Tell them, no, it ain't. It's King Jesus. He's a hooper of taste. What's that? Sit down, let me teach you the Bible. It's a galley slave. That's what he is. He's an under rower at the bottom with the rest of us rowing those oars. It's a wonderful status to have on Christ's ship. Friends, why is it so important? Why is it important that Christians get the image, the perception, the portrait of how they view themselves right? Why is it important for a church, a congregation, to view their ministers, their preachers, their elders rightly? Why? Why do you think God finds it so important that Paul, an apostle, who penned much of the New Testament, is being given the lowest status of a hooperates? Why does God, what is he wanting to show us here? Friends, he's calling us to the status and service of a hooperates because God will not share his glory with another. No one will rival him. No one will outdo him. No one will outshine him. And no one will match his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the whole concept of Christian leaders being celebrities and being treated as such 
is a stench in the nostrils of God. Friends, we're replaceable. We're not indispensable. Pick up the morning newspaper and read the obituary. Go to the nearest graveyard or the cemetery. Friends, God may use any one of us for a season. And then we're gone. Friends, being, Paul is being wise here too, right? He knows the fickleness of the human heart. He knows people can put him up on a pedestal and think more highly of him than they ought to think. But Paul is wanting to gently encourage them, gently shepherd them. Listen, I am human clay. I am a hooper of taste for Christ Jesus. Do not treat me or view me any different. Friends, some of you might love my preaching here and benefit from it. Praise be to God. Some of you might sit here and you just tolerate my preaching every week. God bless you. And you're just like, man, I'm just here for the good Bible study. I smile on Sunday, but I just can't wait until Tuesday or Wednesday because it is way better than that sermon. Praise be to God. If you're growing spiritually, I don't care that much that I'm not your favorite preacher. And if you're like, you know what? Daniel Stewart at North Park, he's hitting home runs. You're hitting singles. I think I'm going to go to North Park. You know what I'm going to (laughs) do? Praise be to God. If a church across town is making disciples and seeing converts and old wonderful things happen and and we have slow growth, you know what we're going to do? Praise be to God. It doesn't matter about our little kingdom. It doesn't matter about my little peanut ministry. It doesn't matter. We're all replaceable. And that's a freeing thing. It's a freeing thing to know that God is getting glory for himself. Friends, let me give you some practical applications here, just real quick. Number one, don't make any man or woman in this church a celebrity or idol in your eyes. Don't make any man or woman into a celebrity or idol in your eyes. We're all replaceable. It doesn't matter if they're a guest preacher, a lead pastor, an elder, a Bible study teacher, or someone you've looked up to for a long time. We are all replaceable. Number two, be on guard. This is very popular right now on the internet. If you're someone who gets on, I would not encourage you to venture into these things, but pitting your favorite pastors and teachers against one another. Pitting your favorite pastors and teachers against one another. What I mean by that is that there's a lot of wonderful things that happen when you grow under someone's ministry. But I've seen people like literally break fellowship. You know, I'm all John MacArthur. I'm all R.C. Sproul. How about you're all for Jesus and we're thankful that God's used Johnny Mac and R.C. Sproul. Don't divide a friendship over that. Don't pit them against each other. They differ on baptism. R.C. Sproul's finding out he was wrong, but anyway. (laughs) the, The reality is we're on the same team. We're preaching the same gospel. We've got different gifts. So what? That's God's wisdom. Some of us are spectacular at counseling. Some of you, I wouldn't allow you to counsel my dog. Others, you can preach lights out. Some of you would literally put us to an early grave. Some of us can sing. Some of us try to sing. Some of us serve with our hands. We are all gifted so differently. Friends, last night we found out we can have a fall festival and a hailstorm. If I was the only one out there, Grant, if I would have been in charge, we would have stood behind the hail. 
I'm thankful for the ways God has blessed this church. I'm thankful for the ways God's gifted this church. Friends, when you meet someone that's gifted differently than you, don't make it a rival conversation. See, wow, God has seen fit that I need Miranda and Mark in my life. And Mark and Miranda have seen fit to see Blake. Me and my, me and, okay, anyway, jumble thoughts. In your life, this is what happens when you get off notes. Bottom line is, God is wiser than we are. Let's celebrate how God's gifted us and give him all the glory. We are farmers in God's field. We are laborers working on God's building, and he is the one causing the growth. But then Paul moves on. He says, you should not view me anything greater than a hooperates or lowly servant. But then he mentions another image in verse 1. Notice what he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul mentions the second correct way that you should view gospel ministers and really, by implication, all Christians. And it's through this image of a steward. Uh, The Greek word there means manager. Uh, This would have been a servant or a slave who owned nothing but managed everything their master of the household entrusted to them. Uh, This could have included almost anything you can imagine. The daily household chores or affairs, tending to the fields, flocks, and the estate, finances and other possessions, maybe like a treasurer today or a financial investor. I think, for example, Joseph in the Old Testament. He went from being a slave thrown into prison unjustly Then he was raised up to a higher status in his master's household. Listen to Genesis 39 of the stewardship Joseph was given. Genesis 39, verses 3 to 6. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Uh, The idea of a manager or a steward is definitely not foreign to us even today. So think about this for a minute. Who in your life has ever put you in charge of something? Someone gave you the keys to a car, keys to a house. Someone put you in charge of someone's kids. Someone gave you the responsibilities while the boss or the head guy was on vacation. Or consider if you've ever been a babysitter. Babysitters are hired temporarily to watch over kids that belong to different people, the parents. The babysitter's not the mom and dad, but they are to care for and watch over and protect those kids in a way that would please mom and dad when they return. Or think about what we see almost in every organization. There's store managers, office managers, restaurant managers, superintendents at schools. All these ways are people managing resources that ultimately belong to someone else. 
Uh, in the home, wives and mothers have a management or stewardship type of responsibility under the authority of their husbands. So read 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, or Titus 2, verse 4. And then husbands and fathers have a management responsibility under the lordship of Jesus Christ as head of their family. You read Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. But then, of course, pastors, they are actually stewards in God's house, the local church. And we know that from a variety of places, but one you could write down, I think it's just an easy one to remember, is Titus 1, verse 7. Titus 1, verse 7 says, For an overseer, speaking of pastor, elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. But what are pastors or overseers stewards of in God's house, in his church? What is their management or their stewardship primarily about? Well, look there in verse 1. Paul says, stewards of the mysteries of God. That phrase, the mystery of God, is the word mysterion in the original language. It's a word that referred to something once hidden that has now been revealed by God. Uh, the mystery of God, that phrase there is used in different ways in the New Testament. It can refer to God's eternal and spiritual wisdom given to us through his teaching, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. Uh, it can also refer to the gospel message itself that had once been hidden in generations past, but had been revealed in the church age, Romans 16, 25, and 26. It could also refer to God's wisdom and bringing together Jew and Gentile as one new humanity, indwelt by the Spirit, making up the church, Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 6. Anyway, taken all together, Paul is saying that ministers of the gospel, or preachers, or elders of a local church, they are managers. They are stewards of God's house. And the primary responsibility of a pastor's stewardship is to take the food of God's word and to feed the mouths and hearts of God's kids. That's his primary responsibility to go in the kitchen of God's word and to bring out the meal for his children to eat. Friends, that is hard work, it is delightful work, and it is wonderful when God's kids enjoy God's word. Uh, friends, this happens through every week, preparing public teaching and in private counsel, week by week, month by month, year by year, unfolding the full counsel of God through discipling, encouragement and teaching. Also, elders steward this ministry in Christ's church by guiding the church to think through what we will prioritize on the church calendar. What we put on the calendar, what we will give our attention to is a stewardship. Also, how we focus on the church budget and the priorities given to that church budget. That's a stewardship that's guided by God's word by the elders. And everything from corporate worship, missions, discipling, and others. All of these things are to protect Christ's church from abuse 
or misusing God's resources. It's also a stewardship to nurture and raise up and see more Christians grow to maturity. Begin, at the very beginning of the sermon, I made that statement, this management, this stewardship is a sober reminder. You are Christ's sheep. Any elder, any pastor, any shepherd should handle that stewardship with fear and trembling. Because one day, every pastor Every under-shepherd who's ever lived and opened up this book will give an account for how they stewarded Christ's church. Please pray for your elders. That is a high responsibility. Pray that we would have wisdom. Pray that we would have boldness. And friends, Pray that we would all see that we are all stewards of whatever God gives us. Look what verse 2 says. What should be the goal of a steward? Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Notice what Paul did not say. He did not say, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found popular. That they be found liked by everyone that everyone agrees with them, that they be a crowd pleaser, ear tickler, or simply a nice guy. No, he says, stewards must be found faithful, trustworthy, reliable, loyal, and obedient to the captain of the ship, King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, every follower of Jesus Christ is a life of stewardship. Every follower of Jesus is called to a life of stewardship and service. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. He combines both images, just like Paul did, and now he applies it to every Christian. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, as each, that is, each believer, has received a gift, use it to Serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, everything we have in this life has been given to us from above. That means we don't own anything. We steward everything. Spiritual gifts, we steward those, right? Whether they are speaking gifts like preaching or teaching or encouragement or singing or administrative gifts like gifts of mercy or administrative gifts but also gifts of mercy, hands-on skills that meet practical needs in the body. We are also called to steward our personal finances, our church's finances, our homes, our vehicles, our land, our properties, our jobs, our hobbies, our relationships, our ministries inside the church, our ministries outside the church. Friends, even how we raise our children is a stewardship from God. Moms and dads have a hard time hearing this, especially with little ones. 
those kids ultimately aren't ours. They're on loan. They're in our capacity for a time, but they're ultimately God's. Friends, even the way we spend our time on earth is a stewardship before God. Ephesians 5, verse 16 says, redeem the time. It means make the best use of it. Author Donald Whitney reminds us of the preciousness of this stewardship of time when he writes this. Time is not like a bag of ice in the freezer out of which you can use a bit when you want and save the rest for later. Instead, time is very much like the sands in an hourglass. What's left is continuously slipping away. Not only is time short in passing, but we do not even know how short it actually is, nor how long before it all passes away. That's the wisdom of Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Thousands entered eternity today, including many much younger than you, who just hours ago had no idea that today was their last day. Had they known that, their use of time would have become far more important to them. A biblical portrait, a portrait that God is pleased with in the life of a Christian is that of a humble servant and a faithful steward. Look at point number two, which is quicker and briefer. Number two, the judgment that matters the most comes from Jesus on the last day and not man in this life. Look at verses three to five with me. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Apparently, Paul had both issues in his life. He had fanboys that were puffed up and following him everywhere he went and thought he was the best thing ever. But then there were also critics from the peanut gallery that constantly criticized him. He had it on both sides. Puff up on one, tear down on the other. And friends, anyone who's going to be useful in God's hands is going to be tempted and tested with both. So how did Paul handle criticism? How did Paul respond to the unfair and untrue accusations made about him and his ministry? How do you respond to unfair or unkind or untrue things said about you in your life? To summarize it, I think Paul models for us the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Notice this, Paul focused less about himself. And he also focused less about what others thought of him. And he focused a whole lot more about what Jesus would say about him on the last day. Friends, knowing my own heart and knowing the hearts of those I've shepherded in this congregation, 
I can tell you this. This is just from one broken sinner to another. Not all, but much of our anger, anxiety, and depression is a result of being too concerned about what others think of you. This is the part of the sermon when you go, ouch, pastor. Good. Not all, but much of our anger, bitterness, resentment, desires for revenge, gossip, slander, mudslinging, angry words, depression, anxiety, is a result of being preoccupied with, obsessed with what others perceive of you. And Paul says, I know that. I'm not going to look outwardly too much, and I'm not going to look inwardly too much. Everybody out there might tell half-truths, some truths, or no truth. And in the same breath, we shouldn't trust our own judgment of ourselves, should we? A clear conscience is a gift from God, but a clear conscience is not God himself. You can think you are faithful. You can think you are A-OK with God and be totally in trouble. In fact, one haunting, haunting quote by Charles Hodge was this. He said, many men think themselves faithful who are most unfaithful. It is not enough that our own conscience does not condemn us. Conscience is a partial and often unenlightened judge. We may justify ourselves and be at last condemned by God. But if our heart condemns us, how can we stand before him who knows all things? Earlier, Brad read the call to worship. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? Anyone can toot their horn. Anyone can love the praises of others. But it is unusual for anyone to be totally devoted to what God thinks. Friends, that is the definition of faithfulness. We don't tune out what anyone else thinks. Church discipline is God's siren to wake people up. You're in sin and you're in trouble. That is a right kind of judgment, 1 Corinthians 5. And there are times we do need to be challenged, corrected, or have someone come along and say, hey, this could be done better. Friends, we all need to grow. So don't tune out your hearing aids to everyone's voices. You do need to listen. But as Spurgeon said, we need to have one blind eye and one deaf ear and a bowed knee to Captain Jesus. His opinion, his approval, his commendation means a whole lot more than any praise you get from anyone in this life. You know why? Because Christ took our condemnation. He was criticized and yet remained faithful. He was publicly humiliated and remained faithful. He was ostracized, marginalized, slandered, and run out of town. And he went to Calvary on a cross, taking on the judgment we rightly deserve. What God does know true and all about us, he took it on. The faithful one for the unfaithful so that we might have his righteousness in exchange. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. 
Faithfulness for the Christian is keeping our eyes on Jesus and caring about his approval or disapproval more than anyone else's approval or disapproval. Friends, if you take the parables of Jesus, I would encourage you to do this. I did this this week. There's too many parables to read in one week. Kind of got me overwhelmed, so I just picked a few. Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25. And then Alan's text from Luke 12. Take the parables of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Take the parable of the slothful and faithful servant and then the the parable of the talents. Take those three alone. Spend the next few days thinking through two things. What does it mean to be a faithful servant and a faithful steward in light of Christ's imminent return? Christ is coming back. I'm going to give an account for my life. Until that day comes, what does it look like to be a faithful servant and steward of Christ? Let me give you a little cheat sheet. Here's what you'll find. If you summarize Jesus' teaching, here's what he tells his followers. We are to be always ready, expectant, busy, obedient, loyal, and fully prepared. Always ready, expectant, busy, obedient, loyal, and fully prepared. Friends, of all the voices we hear in this life, the one that matters the most is well done. My good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, God is faithful, and he will sustain our faith until that great day. God is faithful, and he will reward every act of faithfulness in obedience to him. God is faithful. And friends, he is making us into the image of his son. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be on the ship as a galley slave in service to our captain, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray you would cause each one of us to think about our stewardship in all you've entrusted to us in the church and in the home, out in the workplace and in the world. Lord, cause us to be ready. Cause us to be expectant. Cause us to be loyal, busy, and obedient for King Jesus, awaiting his return. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.